0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it drained? Are you bursting with energy? Do you not have enough boundaries? Or are you craving more time with people? It can be easy to ignore our social battery and spread ourselves too thin, especially with social gatherings picking up after the winter. What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people or maybe you need some more time alone. Figuring out what we need on our own can be challenging and therapy can give you the self-awareness to understand your needs and build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and easily fits in your social calendar. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash fall today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rise and fall.
1: This is CT Media.
0: It's Sunday, September 30th, 2007, and it's an evening service at Mars Hill Church. Mark Driscoll is preparing to preach the final sermon in a series on the book of Nehemiah.
2: I'm going to go ahead and pray. Uh, Tonight is a great text. Uh, A guy beats up some members of his church, Scalps one. Uh, It it really, I mean, it's just heartwarming is really what comes to mind.
0: The subtitle of the series was Building a City Within the City, and they'd been in the book since February, almost eight months. The congregation was meant to take the whole thing as a spiritual metaphor for what Mars Hill was going to look like in Seattle. And the way Driscoll portrayed it throughout the series is that he was cast in the role of Nehemiah, sent by God to the city to bring about reform and restoration. In the final verses of the book, the prophet rebukes the men of Jerusalem for intermarrying with foreign wives, especially the priests. He punishes them, drives a bunch of them out, and the story ends with Nehemiah asking God to be remembered for making the priesthood pure again. So, in casting himself as Nehemiah in these sermons, it's easy for Driscoll to begin to air some of his own frustrations about the work of Mars Hill.
2: Then I confronted them and I cursed them. He's just cussing guys out and beat some of them. I'll read that again. And beat some of them. Now he's an older guy and he's beating up members of his church. What do we do with that? I'll tell you what I'd like to do with that. I'd like to following his example. There's a few guys right now that if I wasn't going to end up on CNN, I would go Old Testament on them, even in leadership in this church.
0: If you've been immersed in Driscoll's world for a while, even if you've just been immersed in this podcast, then these comments are just one more example of Mark presenting himself as a brawler at heart. One more example of a violent ethos that he wanted to project. Even so, there's something unsettling to me in the laughter. It's hard to imagine it in any other church context. A pastor who's verbally intimidating his own staff and elders from the pulpit, which is what this is, to be sure. And it getting laughs and applause from the pews. By the end of the sermon though, when he returns to the theme, there isn't laughter. And he isn't joking.
2: Some men need to be confronted. Some men need to be rebuked. Some men need to be dealt with because of that stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked attitude That I'm a man and I'm the highest authority and I do whatever I want. And so they need to be dealt with in a very strong manner. He fires some spiritual leaders. Certain guys lose jobs. You're not a pastor here anymore.
0: You're out of work. Two of the pastors in that room during that sermon were Paul Petrie and Bent Meyer. Both had been longtime members and leaders there. Paul since 2001 and Bent since before even that. And both were on staff. In days before this, they, along with the other pastors, had been asked to review new bylaws for the church that represented significant changes in the way the church was governed. Paul was also an attorney and had some concerns, so after talking about them with Bent and with the church's legal counsel, had submitted those concerns along with suggested changes the previous Friday, as all of the elders had been asked to do. That afternoon, he and Bent received an email from Jamie Munson, which asked them to come to an impromptu meeting after that evening service at 8.15 15. Here's Paul Petrie.
3: I I thought it was gonna be just Jamie, but it ended up being Jamie and Mark and Bubba Jennings and Scott Thomas.
0: What he'd anticipated was a conversation about the bylaws and about his proposed changes. But as you can imagine, you walk into a room like that, outnumbered, with three of the executive elders and a campus pastor waiting for you, and the temperature changes immediately.
3: And that is the meeting where Bent Meyer and I were fired on the spot. After Mark gave his Nehemiah sermon on beating up his pastors, <laughs> little did we realize we were those couple of guys.
0: Was I chasing? Country? From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of one church that grew from a handful of people to a movement and then collapsed almost overnight. It's a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma, problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America today. And yet, it's also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. Today on the podcast, Episode 7, States of Emergency. There are almost as many models for church governance as there are churches. Denominational hierarchies, pastor as apostolic CEO, congregational models where members vote on almost everything. You could go on and on. And you could debate the merits of different models all day, too. A good governance model can protect a church from a bad leader, and a bad one can protect a bad leader from a church trying to hold them accountable. Church leaders who organize these systems are often trying to walk a tightrope. On the one hand, They want a structure flexible enough so that they can make budget decisions and hires as needed to respond to rising concerns in the church. On the other hand, there's a need for oversight and checks and balances. And those require a lot more time because other people have to understand the rationale for a decision and give consent. It slows things down. And that tension between accountability and speed is at the heart of some of Mars Hill's deepest conflicts.
3: You know, most churches, you always had this sort of senior pastor And for lack of a better term, almost a a Moses model, if you will, where you had like one guy and he was calling all the shots. And uh, Marcel was very, at the time, was very different.
0: This is Paul Petrie again. He's describing the era around 2001, when he arrived at the church.
3: Mark would always say, you know, all of the elders here have one vote. And at that time, there were not that many elders. Let's see, there was Leif Moy, there was Mike Gunn, there was Bent Meyer, and Mark made it very clear from the pulpit that everybody here is equal in authority, so if they wanted to get rid of me, they could. You know, I never heard a pastor actually say that, and so even though he was sort of brash, if you will, he had these guys around him that, you know, could hold him accountable, and so we, we felt safe
0: that sense of safety mattered to quite a few people. As compelling as Driscoll might have been, you couldn't help but get the sense that a 30-ish firebrand probably didn't need to be left entirely to his own devices running a church. And by all accounts, the elders around him in those early years locked horns with him regularly. For Paul and others, it was just a matter of common sense. You'd want the church to be led by a consensus of a number of leaders. Besides that, There was also the fact that no one thought of Driscoll as some kind of lone gunman church planter. If you'd come to the church any time before 2006, you'd have known that Mike Gunn and Leif Moy weren't just elders. They were co-founders. Mike Gunn was in campus ministry at the University of Washington and was involved with Driscoll in college ministry at Antioch Bible Church starting in 1994. Leif Moy was the host of a syndicated radio show called Street Talk, and Driscoll would regularly appear on air.
4: Okay, Matt, Seattle, Washington. How you doing, Matt? All right. What's on your mind?
2: Why are you pro-life? Um, you asked me this question once before, Matt. Why does it matter? What value is there in human life?
4: You don't think there's any
2: value in human life? Well, I'm, I'm asking you. B- you. I do why because there is a God, but why do you care? I think yeah. they're creating the image and likeness of God, and that's where they have value.
0: For many years, the story of God calling Mark and telling him to marry Grace, preach the Bible, and train men included him asking Mike and Leif to join him.
2: So I found two guys that I could really trust and admire. They were like Priscilla and Aquila, great marriages. Their wives were good teachers. It was Leif Moy, who's one of the pastors here with his wife, Tanya, and Mike Gunn, who since went off with his wife, Donna, to plant a church. And I sat the tomb down and I said, we're going to plant a church. Are you with us? And they said, yes. I we just tripled. The church exploded. (laughs) Bang. We're at six. This is amazing, you know.
0: A significant part of Mars Hill's early ministry took place in an old theater in Seattle's university district. It was called the Paradox. The church met there, and they hosted all-ages concerts there at a time when the city of Seattle made hosting concerts like that really difficult. That work at the Paradox helped put Mars Hill on the map, but it was Moy who actually owned the building and allowed Mars Hill to use it. In those early days, there was genuine shared leadership between the three of them. Here's how Driscoll described it in 2001
2: a perception within protestantism that the pulpit is the most important thing that happens in the church so whoever's in the pulpit is the most important person okay and that's something that needs to be re-hardwired that that there's worship that's gathered but the most important thing is worship that's scattered where the people go out and be missionaries during the week that's the most important thing because without that we have nothing to get back together to celebrate and so I think you can fight that on a number of levels. I think one of them is is removing the concept of the senior pastor and removing that word. I think part of it is attempting in as much as is possible to empower other preachers and communicators to throw and to split. Teaching. And if they're not great with a pulpit, then creating other avenues where they're seen in positions of leadership and authority. You guys are, if you guys go to the Bible study tonight, I don't teach it. Mike Gunn teaches it. He's a better interactive teacher than I am. I'm a better monologue. He's a better dialogue. So when we do the big outdoor Bible study,
5: he tells it. I don't. You know, there's a thing where Mark, you know, is perceived as sort of this monolithic person who doesn't share the pulpit. I remember times there were guest pastors. This
0: is Brian Zog He was a member at Mars Hill from 2000 to about 2013.
5: I know a person Mark, like, offered a position to, to come be co-preaching pastor at Mars Hill in the early days, right?
0: In church planning, you're always throwing spaghetti at the wall, hoping something sticks. Mars Hill was no exception to this. And ideas like running a music venue, which is a real headache as well as an opportunity, or the online chat board, or film nights, or experiments with who might lead in the pulpit were all part of the recipe. Driscoll, too, was testing out his own sense of his skills as a leader.
5: His thing was, like, if he was anything, he was the stand-up comic guy, right? That was kind of his exploration in making art, right? Was experimenting in the pulpit with those sorts of things and kind of taking that risk. Because at the time, it was not clear that any of this would pan out. When you look back at Mars Hill, sometimes you're like, oh, it's just obvious. No, there were times when, like, the first year I was there in 2000, they didn't know if they were going to get over 200 people and whether this was going to be sustainable and they were going to shut the doors. It was all an experiment. This gets at something we've
0: said before, but it bears repeating. There's much about Driscoll that might have been baked in from the beginning, like his understanding of gender or his hunger to win every conflict. But if there was some master plan to build Mars Hill into a megachurch, I'm yet to find anyone who knew about it. There were certainly people who thought it was possible, people who met Mark and saw his charisma and instincts. But for the most part, especially inside the church, no one had a sense that it was coming. When things began to take off and Driscoll started taking center stage more, there was actually a sense of loss.
5: Just a few years later, there's an Acts 29, you know, pastors regional gathering at Marcel Ballard in the lobby of the big building, and. In the Q&A at the end, somebody says, hey, we're, you know, we have three pastors and we work on sharing the pulpit. And like, how do you think about that with, you know, Mars Hill? And he said, I don't share the pulpit. I'm basically the only person that can carry this
1: off. Mark got it in his head that everybody was gravitating toward his services.
0: This is when the Alsa.
1: And, you know, Mark was... The best speaker of the three. And so that was really when the philosophy of the church started changing and it started slowly becoming the thing they hated, which was uh, an American evangelical megachurch. Mega the sense was that Mark drew the most people. Um, and had a sense that he, it was on his back to sustain that level of growth. I think that's in the end, that's what it was. Mark wanted, wanted to sustain that level of growth and thought he was the only one capable of doing it.
0: Mike Gunn had spun Mars Hill South Campus into an independent church by then, called Harambe. But as of 2006, Leif Moy was still on staff, and Driscoll still spoke of him not only as a co-founder of the church, but as his pastor.
2: Uh, the elders and the pastors here are a team, mutually submissive. I've got my own pastor on staff, Pastor Leaf. My wife and I submit to him. I have accountability with him. I'm one guy who votes with the other guys. This is not a dictatorship. The senior pastor is Jesus. We're a functional, working, healthy, mutually submissive team. So I'm not saying I'm the spiritual leader, you do what I say. I think that's very abusive when one person alone is the spiritual leader.
0: When it was first established, Mars Hill's governance model was what's often referred to as elder-led or elder-ruled. This meant that all of the ultimate responsibility for the church was vested in the elders or pastors. In this model, those words are usually used interchangeably. They determined the policy, budgets, doctrinal statements, ministry philosophy, you name it. Mars Hill wasn't tied to a denomination, of course, so there was no external authority beyond the church. It boiled down, as Mark said, to one elder, one vote. And that model is fairly common among reform-minded, baptistic churches. John MacArthur advocates for it, as does Wayne Grudem, Alexander Strock, and Gene Getz. And if you were church planning in the early 2000s, one of the most vocal advocates for this model was actually Mark Driscoll. For instance, here he is offering a criticism of the pastor
2: as CEO. just to know everything. He has to govern everything. He has to be a generalist who can tell everybody everything. That's a really tough deal. Very tough deal. Now, can the church grow if it has a senior pastor that is idolized? Well, sure. If your goal is church growth and not church health, one way to do it is get a really charismatic, dynamic personality that attracts a large number of people and let him do whatever he wants. And then he'll never leave. And the people will say, I go to so-and-so's church. So-and-so is my pastor. Have you ever met him? No. No, I never met him. Never met him. He's my pastor. He's changed my life. That one day I shook his hand, never been the same since.
0: For most of Mars Hill's ministry years, they implemented this vision. Driscoll would often say that Jesus was actually the senior pastor. He was the teaching pastor. And Jamie Munson, who in other contexts would have been called the executive pastor, was actually the lead pastor of the church. Mark was one elder with one vote, and the other elders could fire him at any time. There's an obvious irony in the clip, though, because a few years later, they would be a multi-site church with Mark preaching on video screens. Not only would members be in a different building than him, some would be in a different state. But as they'd frame it then, the video preaching was just one aspect of ministry that was surrounded by local ministry of pastors in each congregation. The degree to which that was a reality is visible in the fact that budgets, over time, became concentrated on the central ministries. But let's leave that rabbit trail aside, because there's something else going on in Mark's teaching in these sessions that I think reflects a broader experience at Mars Hill. You can hear it in the critique from a moment ago, or from this one, where he talks about Rick Warren's purpose-driven church
2: model. I should repent in advance because I'm going to enjoy this. purpose-driven model. Co-centric circles. You got a core around them. You got a congregation. You got a crowd of people that may or may not have levels of connectivity with your church. And you have the general community which surrounds your church. Your goal is to move them in so that they run around the bases and get to the point where they can be in the core. I'm not exaggerating. I've been fair. Yes. Potential idolatry is that we worship the community, and that really our goal is to get people to be the core. What else is missing? God. I have written it just as it appears. So there's no God. Now what happens to people once they become core? What is the potential attitude? I am very important. I slid into home. I'm very important. Why? Because I'm core. How about there's no real interface with culture. There's no view of leadership. This is a multi-level marketing strategy. This is a modified Amway.
0: There's a total of nearly six hours of these lectures, which were for Acts 29 pastors in the early 2000s. He weaves together contemporary scholarship on missions and culture with reflections on postmodernism, historical theology, and his own observations from planting Mars Hill. He continually brings his arguments back to Scripture, too, making the case that what he's arrived at is the biblical way to go. There's swagger and chest thumping and arrogance to it all for sure. But there's also a display of the intelligence that made so many leaders gather around him in the years to come, both inside Mars Hill and outside, in networks of pastors like Acts 29 and the Gospel Coalition. That tone's really important to the big picture. It's not just that he's got convictions and thinks he's right. It's also that everyone else is so wrong. So if you bought into his vision, you felt like you were in on a secret, like the rest of the church was fumbling around in the dark while Driscoll had flipped the lights on. These lectures focus on big-picture ministry philosophy, but that attitude pervaded the whole ministry of the church. So when you pay attention to ministry philosophy, you see that preaching is boring, so we learn from stand-up comics. Sunday school and small groups don't work, so we do community groups. Recovery programs don't understand the gospel, so we do redemption groups. Christian counseling focuses too much on secular psychology, so we do biblical counseling. Music is a pretty stark example of this, too. For much of Mars Hill's history, there was such a distaste for Christian music, they only played original songs and hymns. It fostered a tremendous amount of creativity, but as several worship leaders from the church told me, it also fostered an arrogance that left them disconnected from other churches. There are many other places where this attitude pervaded. Children's ministry, marriage and family, women's ministry, publishing and conferences. Mars Hill even developed their own unaccredited graduate-level training programs for pastors under the moniker Retrain. Here's how Jen Smith describes the prevailing spirit of it all.
1: There was so much um overt and subtle messages of that we were doing things right. Mark had a way of communicating the gospel. We had a way of of creating community groups. We had we just had the you know we had music that was the best. We loved people so well. Like we had this this magic, I don't know, this special sauce, this magic powder that, that worked. And so we were certain that we were doing things well or right because we were growing and God, people were coming to Jesus and God was blessing things.
0: That sense of movement is captured in an overt way in a sermon from 2011. Driscoll is preaching from Luke chapter 14, where Jesus tells the disciples to count the cost of following him, that they must be ready to give up everything. He drives the point home by asking the church what they're giving their lives away to
2: you're gonna die, I'm gonna die, we're gonna die. I'm not looking to die, but if it comes, I want it to count. I want your life to count. I want your death to count. I want your legacy to matter. And what I love about Jesus' words is that they are brutally honest. It seems unconscionable or perhaps just miraculous that this man with this message would gather billions of people and that's what he's done and this i believe prophetic word comes to us from the bible from jesus and he is saying to continue to not quit but to continue and he gives us this word today at the best point in the history of our church.
0: There's something here worth pausing on. It's the way that Driscoll's centering on something like existential angst. We're going to die, so let's live a life that counts. While there's nothing inherently wrong with that message, and in fact there's reason to talk about it because of the passage, there's a subtle turn he makes here at the end when he makes it about the church.
2: Fifteen years ago, a little Bible study met at my house. It's now called Marcel. You know what? We're not behind on budget. We beat budget. We didn't shrink last year. We grew. We didn't have less community groups, redemption groups, baptisms, weddings, children. We had more. Every single campus is growing. There is unity across the entire leadership. It's actually fantastic. The annual report that is now available or online, you can read it. It's unbelievable. It's just A miracle after a miracle after a miracle after a miracle. The
0: shift that's taken place is that the call to discipleship, where Jesus invites us to count the cost of following him, gets relocated as a call to investment in Mars Hill Church.
2: And what could kill us at this point, this this window of opportunity, most of you don't know it because this is the only church you've ever really known. But we have a window of opportunity that God has opened up for us to to see the kind of grace that one day they write a book about. They write a book about showing how Jesus showed up at an unlikely place among an unlikely people and did an unlikely thing and that we got to be a part of it. This This is it for me.
0: The cost of discipleship, as Jesus lays out in Luke 14, is the potential of rejection from friends and family and a willingness to take up your cross. The promise on the other side of that loss is eternal life. Here, though, in Driscoll's sermon, the reward is to be part of Mars Hill, part of a movement people will write books about. And the costs are the pragmatic costs of participation in church membership.
2: If you have disciples, and if you have non-Christians, everything will be fine, but what kills it are all the Christian consumers. All the people who don't, go to community group. Don't serve. Don't give. Don't become members because the bar is set too high. We intentionally set the bar high. You want to be a member of this church? You got to read a huge book with a thousand footnotes. So you say, I'm not going to read that book. Well, then you're not going to be a good church member. If all it takes is footnotes to scare you away, you're not ready for war. You want to get married, you're going to have to go through a premarital process, declare all your sexual sin and history, submit to spiritual authority, and someone may tell you no. And you have to be okay with that.
0: To put it all together, then, you can see that the messaging creates a sense of urgency around the listener because you're going to die and you'd better make life matter. Driscoll's reaching to the heart where everyone longs for a sense of purpose. The promise that emerges is that you can find purpose at Mars Hill, where miracle after miracle is taking place. And the numbers in the annual report become a kind of objective evidence. How can you argue with them? The call to action, then, is to join the movement. Get committed, start serving, start giving, take on the responsibilities of becoming a member, read the book with a thousand footnotes, and embrace the church's authority in your life, including an approach to premarital counseling that involves confessing the intimate details of your past, not just with your future spouse, but with the mentoring couple, and then submitting to the idea that they could tell you not to marry. We're hearing all this lifted a bit out of context, but the call to action comes not only at the end of a much longer sermon, But in the midst of this community's whole life, where people have witnessed transformation, deep friendships, and all manner of learning and growth. The result is an enmeshed perspective on the work of God and the work of the Church. Not the Capital C Church, as in the global or historical church, but this particular local church. By transmutating the call to follow Jesus as a call to the duties of membership at Mars Hill, Driscoll is borrowing capital from the scriptures to call people to give, serve, and submit to authority at his church. And on one level, that's a perfectly normal thing for pastors to ask of their church members. But there's an absolutism that comes with it in this context too. That ethos that communicates that Mars Hill has gotten so many things right that everyone else is getting wrong. Driscoll is hardly the only one to employ this kind of rhetoric in calling people to commit to the church. You heard a similar comment from Bill Hybels on episode 2 of this podcast.
3: Willow has to reach its full potential because it's the hope of the world.
0: Grandiosity is a feature of this kind of church. Hybels calls Willow Creek the hope of the world. Driscoll says people will write books about Mars Hill. There's an almost utopian sense of what the church might be capable of, an eschatological promise that God's going to fulfill his purposes for the city, or for the world, through this church, these people, these leaders. The weight of the potential outcome, that utopian vision of a transformed city, or a revived generation, creates tremendous momentum, and you can easily get caught up in that momentum and find a sense of purpose and fulfillment. For many at Mars Hill, that was their story. But as Paul Petri and Bent Meyer found out one Sunday night in September 2007, that momentum can be a curse too, because if you're in its way, it's going to run you down. We'll be right back.
5: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago
0: on CT's The Bulletin we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on.
0: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict—
6: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And
4: why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
6: I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week,
0: Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Thanks for listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This kind of long-form journalism and storytelling is made possible by CT's growing community of members around the world. If you'd like to be a part of this global movement to lift up the storytellers and sages of the Church, consider subscribing to CT Magazine. Your membership will help fund future projects like this one, and we've got some really exciting things in the works. As a subscriber, you'll also get a number of member-only perks, including special issues and early access to all of CT's magazine content. Learn more and get your first three months free at orderct.com slash marshill. Let's talk about totalitarianism for a minute. If you look at the history of totalitarian movements, or more generally, even dictatorships, there's a common and necessary catalyst for a leader to seize power. It's the ability to declare a state of emergency. Almost any government that isn't an absolute monarchy is gonna have some kind of checks and balances on one person's authority, some separation of powers. But when you declare a state of emergency, You have a reason to concentrate authority inside a smaller and smaller circle, or even in just one individual, to guide the nation until the time of emergency is passed. You can suspend certain rights, delay due processes, and otherwise justify any expression of power necessary to answer the crisis of the moment. The most famous example of this is the Reichstag fire decree in Germany from February 1933. But similar events took place in fascist Italy, Soviet Russia, even going all the way back to ancient Rome. The point isn't the particulars of any one of these ideologies. Let me be clear about that. But it's to look at the mechanics of power. If you can convince people that there's an emergency looming over them and that you're the one to answer the call to fix it, history shows that people are quite ready and willing to hand power over to you.
2: Only one hundred churches in America got over six thousand ten thousand only about forty churches in America get over ten thousand and What I say is that at each point there are ceilings of complexity and if you 're unwilling or unable to navigate those those complex stages, uh, the church doesn 't grow and you say, "Well, why is that a problem? Uh, the problem is not to grow the church; the problem is if people stop meeting Jesus because the, the systems, the policies, procedures, the, the services, the, the leadership structure says no more people can get saved. No more people can worship Jesus. No more people can grow.
0: This is from an Acts 29 training event in February 2008, and it's a perfect illustration of creating that sense of emergency. The assumption, which is totally unchallenged here, is that uninhibited growth is the key for people to meet Jesus. A church that reaches a growth ceiling is, in this frame, telling people that no one else can meet Jesus or grow in their faith.
2: The point is not that you want to grow a church, the point is that you want people to meet Jesus. Um, the pain point in all growth it comes on the senior leader. It all comes on the senior leader because everyone has spoken and unspoken expectations. And when they are not met, some will feel hurt, some will feel betrayed, some will feel disappointed, some will feel displaced. Some will leave quietly, some will declare war, some will declare that you are in sin, some will accuse you of being arrogant and proud, some will accuse you of having sold out and changed. And in those moments, you will pay a high toll emotionally to change. It will cost you personally.
0: This lecture was recorded a few months after that Nehemiah sermon a few months after the firing of Paul Petrie and Bent Meyer, and the tremendous fallout that came in the aftermath. What led up to those events, though, is precisely the spirit you heard moments ago, the urgency of mission, and win-at-all-costs approach to growth. To understand the build-up to that conflict, you actually have to go all the way back to 2004.
3: So we had an elders meeting in the green room, and Mark was out of town but uh, Jamie came in with a stack of uh, documents.
0: That's Jamie Munson, the executive pastor.
3: And so we're all sitting around, you know, uh, it was an impromptu elders meeting, and Jamie handed out these documents, and he said, and, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I'm not saying exactly what he said, this is just how I sort of remember it. Um, he said, "Now, Mark, Mark is out of town, so he can't be here, but he wanted you guys to look through the new bylaws that we're proposing and it would be really great if we could just vote on them and get it done so that when he comes back, he doesn't have to deal with it. Like, yeah, let's, let's do this for Mark, you know? And so me being a lawyer, (laughs) bylaws are like a big deal, right? I mean, uh, I remember when, John Piper's church changed their bylaws. I mean, I I think they uh, wrestled with them for like six years before they came up with a new set of bylaws. So here we were being asked uh, to basically read a rather thick document and vote on it right there on the spot. Well, I I immediately made a motion that we table this thing for at least 30 days— so we have a chance to review them and comment or whatever. Well, that went over like a lead balloon.
0: Another elder seconded the motion, requiring 30 days for the bylaws to get reviewed. And Petri found himself an object of no small amount of frustration from the other elders, who didn't want to be tied up with these debates. That included Mark Driscoll.
3: Well, anyway, when Mark came back, he was not a happy camper, but he also was not, uh, how should I say... He wasn't abusive.
0: In the days that followed, there were lots of late nights in a nearby pub. Lots of emails back and forth as Paul, Mark, and Jamie worked to come to something they could agree on.
3: Mark and I really argued about it, and we we fought a lot over what the final wording was going to be. But eventually, it got voted on, and that became the elders of or the uh, bylaws of Mars Hill.
0: The basic idea of the new bylaws was pretty simple. There was a shared desire to be able to continually add new elders to the team. But as the church got bigger, it became more and more difficult to keep all of the elders informed about the ins and outs of the church's operations. To use examples Petri gave me, you'd want the whole body of elders to agree on spending $50,000 on a sound system, but you didn't want them to have to vote on $100 worth of office supplies. So the new bylaws allowed for a group of executive elders— would oversee the operations of the church and would have a greater degree of flexibility regarding budgets and hiring. Petri admits that he didn't get everything he wanted in those bylaws, but as a compromised document, he was pretty happy with it.
3: And I saw Jamie and he came into my office and I said, you know, I, I know we've had some words over this and we've argued over it, but I just want to say that there's, you know, I don't feel any offense. And I think we really came up with something that is going to be good for the church for years to come. And he looked at me and he said, it's not over.
0: It would be another three years until the discussion was picked back up, and Jamie Munson would propose another set of amendments to the bylaws. That was September 2007. Essentially, these amendments would take the changes of 2004 a step further. It would vest all the governing authority of the church in a board of directors, made up of the executive team. Driscoll, Munson, and a handful of other top staff members, plus an elected group of elders out of the larger body. The result, though, would be that by passing these bylaws, the elders would be signing away all governing authority of the church to this new body. This time around, they were given several weeks to review the documents and submit comments, which Paul did, as well as Bent Meyer, another elder. They had also called the church's legal counsel and asked some questions about the changes. And he, in turn, had called the executive pastor and filled him in. Come Friday night, September 28th, Paul and Bent submitted their proposed changes to Jamie Munson.
3: To be honest with you, at the time, I didn't really think I was taking any kind of a stand. I just figured, hey, you know, you you asked my opinion and I'm going to do the best job I can for what I think is, you know, a good legal document. And I know that, you know, in any kind of contract negotiations or whatever, there's going to be compromises and things like that. I never saw myself as this contrarian or that I was taking a stand against something. I just figured, man, you know, it's my job, you know, and, and I, I was going to do the best job I could.
0: What they didn't know was that they'd kicked up a firestorm and that a whole lot of anger was headed their way. Scott Thomas was the executive director of Acts 29 and one of the executive elders at Mars Hill. He'd been part of the discussions since that Friday
4: when the comments were turned in. We said, well, call Paul and Bent into a meeting. And we had a meeting up in Mark's office and it um, was in between services. And it, and I thought we were going to have a discussion. Instead, he basically fired, not basically, he fired both of them using expletives uh, on the moment and then said, all right, you can leave quietly or we'll do an investigation. And they said, we want an investigation. This is where the story starts to get particularly messy.
0: Paul and Bent were both employees, and technically, Driscoll did have the ability to fire them, according to the bylaws. But they were also elders, and the bylaws didn't have a stipulation for what happened to their status as elders if they were terminated as employees. So Driscoll was strong-arming them. Resign your eldership on the spot, or we're going to hold a trial and disqualify you. For Paul and Bent, that would be tantamount to taking responsibility for their own firing. And so they refused. Bring on the trial.
4: So that's what kicked it off. Um, But they saw, they saw that there was like more and more control being moved toward Mark and away from the elders. And that was their fear.
0: And their fear was justified. There are a lot of twists and turns to this story. Too many to detail here in a coherent way. The Petries have posted most of it online at JoyfulExiles.com in case you want to get into the weeds. Otherwise, know that what's presented here is kind of a Cliff's Notes. The Petries and the Myers were beloved families at Mars Hill. In their roles as pastors, they'd done countless hours of counseling and care, teaching classes on marriage and parenting, and investing their lives in younger folks around them. If there had been a calculus in Driscoll's mind that he could fire them without consequences, he was wrong. Here's Wendy Alsop again.
1: And the first thing I thought is like, I didn't even know you could fire elders like that. So you could just, one elder can just write that the other elders are fired. And that's how a plurality of elders work. And, um, but that was the moment, Andy, I remember Andy looking at me in the car and he said, Mark just fired the wrong two guys. And um, we tried so hard we, we loved Bent and Paul, and we loved Mark. And we wanted them to reconcile because, you know what, it was foolish to fire them. They were his elders, Mark was their elder, they were his elders, it was a plurality of elders, and they should have been able to work that out. It was not the kind of thing that could not have been worked out.
0: The affection the community had for Paul and Bent was matched by their love for the church. Before coming to Mars Hill, Paul had been an attorney, but as so often happens in church planting, his investment in the growing community led to an invitation to set aside that career and come on staff.
3: When they asked me to come on staff, I just kind of looked back on my life and I thought, wow, everything that's happened to me led up to this point in time. And it just all made sense, you know? And I think a lot of people that were there, uh, you know, from the early days uh, up until that point, uh, I can certainly say this, I think it was some of the best days of my life. And I would say from a, from a standpoint of being a part of a church and, and, and that, uh, I don't think I've ever regained uh, an experience like that, you know, and I think that's very hard for a lot of people as well.
0: The day after their firing, Driscoll spoke in an event for pastors on preaching. And it was in this context, after firing Benton Paul, that he made his now infamous comments about the bus.
2: Too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. (laughs) And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday, we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off mission, so now they're unemployed. I mean, you this will be the defining issue as to whether or not you succeed or fail. I've read enough of the New Testament to know that occasionally, Paul puts somebody in the wood chipper.
0: That same day, Scott Thomas was assigned to lead an elder investigation task force, looking into charges from Driscoll that Paul and Bent had disqualified themselves as elders.
4: What we determined with a group of godly men who were coming together, and what we would determined was Paul nor Bent had done anything to disqualify themselves from eldership. And that was our report. I've got the full report um, right now, but we, we sort of determined there was nothing to disqualify them from eldership. You would think with a
0: conclusion like that, it would be sort of an open and shut case with the rest of the elders. But there's a weird disconnect that happens in the middle of this. The team that Scott Thomas was leading, investigating Paul and Bent, did clear them of wrongdoing, but they didn't communicate that to them directly. Instead, In all the formal communications that I've seen, they've simply said that the investigation was complete and that Paul and Bent didn't need to attend their own trial before the rest of the elders. Remember that Paul's an attorney, too, so the idea that he's not allowed to attend a trial in which he's accused of disqualifying behavior is anathema. Meanwhile, communication's already gone out to all of the members announcing that they've been fired and are under investigation. The letter does note that there's no moral or sexual impropriety, but it's otherwise ambiguous as to what they'd done. And it then tells the church that they're not allowed to talk about it or it's gossip. So Paul and Bent are in a position where they've been fired, accused of disqualifying behavior, had a cloud thrown over their reputations with the church, aren't being told that the investigation has cleared them, and are being told, don't come to the trial. The whole thing was a recipe for disaster. The elders eventually relented and invited them to attend.
4: Both came in and spoke. They thought that we were saying they were guilty and they they approached it that way and then began to blast you know most everybody in the room and so it didn't help their cause and so the elders said well we got to take action now um and it's a different way than what the, the team that was investigating it we said they did nothing to disqualify themselves from eldership and uh, But after they spoke, they said, well,
0: maybe they should at least be reprimanded. Brad House had only recently become an elder, and he was in the room as well.
6: But when you look at the response, the response was someone who was being questioned, you know, with 20 elders in just a very aggressive atmosphere. You know, it's really hard in that moment to be able to just calmly, <laughs> calmly respond. And so there's this, like you know this catch 22 you know you're being put in a pressure cooker and then being told look you're look at how you look, look look how tense you are look how you know how defensive you are and it's like well you did just put him in a pressure cooker
0: and of course at the center of that conflict was mark driscoll
6: mark's a persuasive debater i mean that's debate is what he did so you know if if you were going to debate him he didn't necessarily always play fair. And so, um, so that, was his, that was his element.
0: Paul's trial was actually on a separate night from Bent Myers. It was on October 15th. And at the end of that night, in spite of the report of the investigation that fully cleared him, the elders voted unanimously to disqualify him from eldership. An email went out to the entire church the next day telling them so. Bent Myers' trial was two weeks later. And while he wasn't disqualified as an elder, he was placed on probation. That was far from the end of things, though. There was an uproar with the members over how the whole thing was handled, and the elders made efforts to quell them through an online message board and several written communications. They also began applying pressure to Paul Petri, indicating that if he took responsibility for events, they could reconcile. He stood his ground, though, and on November 2nd, he withdrew his membership. It was a big enough firestorm for the church. that on November 9th, the elders released a 142-page document, including a four-page cover letter from Driscoll blaming Petri for the whole thing. It also includes a flat-out denial that his comments in the Nehemiah sermon had anything to do with Petri or Meyer. Then, on December 5th, Jamie Munson posted a statement to members telling them to treat Paul as someone who was an unrepentant unbeliever under church discipline, which meant shunning him and cutting off all of the Petri's relationships.
3: What really hurt was you know, if I had done something really sinful, like let's say I was caught picking up a prostitute or something on Aurora or having an affair with my secretary or whatever, let's say that something like that would have happened, some really, you know, big sort of sin that became public. Um, How would the church have reacted to that? Well, I, I think what would have happened would be that the women of the church would have got together and started preparing meals and calling Jana and saying, Hey, how, how can we serve you? You, you know, we, this is terrible what's happened, but we're here. We want to help, you know, those kinds of things. They would not have shunned my family. It wouldn't have happened. And, but yet that is what happened. And that was devastating. I mean, my wife was like, it was a blackout. Nobody called her. Nobody contacted her. It was just horrible. And it had a huge, huge effect on my family, on my kids, you know. I mean, I could go on, but to me, that was the most horrible thing. It was these people that we loved and we counted as our friends, uh, you know, didn't even pick up the phone to call.
0: You can look at the whole thing as a series of escalations, a conflict getting elevated one conversation at a time. And for most of the elders, this is all new territory. Here's Brett House again.
6: I had, at that time, like uh, I was so naive in terms of understanding power dynamics and and uh, how much those th- those th- those play into these type of situations. Uh, you know, there was just a naivete about about that stuff. And you know, I look back and go, yeah, you know, definitely some some power dynamics, and and it was it was hard to know which way is up. You know, and at the end of the day, you want to do ministry, you want to help people. And you're like, man, this is one, I didn't sign up for trials. Like, like we didn't, we didn't study this, you know, you know, what's going on.
0: There are good questions to ask about institutional knowledge, about how pastors get trained to handle and de-escalate conflict, about things like trials for elders or church members. Like much of Mars Hill's culture, this stuff took on a particularly muscular and aggressive form. But the bigger question, the most obvious question, seems to be the one that no one was willing to ask themselves, and even all these years later, wasn't readily in mind for many of them. All Paul and Bent did was what they had been asked to do, review a document and give feedback. It was Driscoll who took to the pulpit and used a sermon as a venue to air his grievances with them. It was Driscoll who, by all accounts, verbally assaulted them after that service when they were fired. It was Driscoll who, the next day, celebrated a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and said that he was following the Apostle Paul by putting leaders in the wood chipper. Everything that followed in the aftermath was an exercise in systemic gaslighting. Sure, you were mocked in the pulpit. You were verbally abused behind closed doors. Your reputation was soiled with the church at large, and now you're forced to defend yourself in a tribunal surrounded by 20 elders. But why are you so mad? As for the rest of those elders, they were caught up in it. They voted to disqualify Paul, to discipline Bent Meyer, and they passed the bylaws, giving up all of their legal governing authority to the board of directors.
3: They all just collapsed, and uh, you know went along went along with being stripped of their authority without even without even saying a peep. And and, and I guess they didn't see what the repercussions of that would be long term. That's, that's all I can guess.
0: Spiritual abuse is what you call it when someone leverages issues of eternal significance for power, including the power to crush dissent. It's because people are invested in their spirituality so deeply that they're susceptible to the manipulations of someone who knows how to traffic in the language and emotions of religion and religious experience. Christians, as a rule, are eager for more people to meet Jesus. And it's in the nature of a church like Mars Hill to prioritize that over everything else. And if there's one thing Mars Hill knew how to do, it was leverage the numbers. The clearest evidence is in just how often they cited the numbers throughout their communication with members during this whole series of events. In the email announcing Paul and Ben's firing, there's a preamble about how they're opening up 3,400 new seats and seven new services. When Paul had been removed from eldership, The email starts off by mentioning Mars Hill's 11th anniversary with more than 6,000 people attending. When trying to quell the uproar among members, an email on October 25th cited 6,400 people in attendance that previous Sunday, also noting that it was 1,500 more people than the last year at that time. And there are numerous references to growth throughout the 142-page document that came out in November. This is the state of emergency. It's equating the growing numbers with the expanding kingdom of God the need to make more room, the need to keep moving the mission forward. So maybe due process isn't necessary. Maybe information gets siloed or misrepresented. Maybe there's a few dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. Maybe the elders need to relinquish their authority. But when the growth of the church is made one and the same with the expansion of the kingdom of God, who wants to stand in its way? Don't you care about lost people? That same year, Leif Moy would be removed from his role as the campus pastor at the Ballard campus and demoted to part-time work. There was controversy around all of this, too. But Leif came back and took the responsibility on himself, and he was reinstated as an elder. He ran into legal troubles in 2008 and was disqualified then and removed from leadership. In the midst of all of this transition, Mars Hill also canceled everyone's membership, forcing them to start from scratch, attend membership classes anew, and recommit to a revised member's covenant. Bent Meyer and his family left during this time, as did Wendy and Andy Alsop. In all, almost 1,000 people would leave. But it didn't hinder the church's growth, not hardly.
3: Like after it all happened, you know, the church just like took off on this growth boom, you know? I mean, they went from, I don't know what it was, somewhere between four and 6,000 to 15,000, like boom, you know? And so I think that, that, in part, was people looking and saying, oh, well, I guess we made the right decision, you know.
0: A couple of years later, Mars Hill hired Nick Bogardis to come in and work on their media and communications team. Nick only knew of Mars Hill from a distance. He'd actually moved to Seattle after working for a couple of years in Romania, so he came in with no context for this story. Logos Bible Software had just made a deal with Driscoll to include his sermon transcripts in their library of resources. And one of Nick's first jobs was to prep those transcripts for the library.
2: I got a call from Mark's assistant, and he said, um, we want you to go through all the transcriptions from, like, I don't know, five or six sermon series, like Genesis, Nehemiah, something else. We want you to remove every reference to Leif Moy, Paul Petrie, Wendy Allsep. And there might have been maybe Mike maybe Gunn. I, I can't remember. There might have been a, a handful of people. I thought, well, well these, people, these people must have done something bad. Because they wouldn't ask me to do something like this unless it was really needed, right? Unless unless these people had done something worthy of being removed, um, they should they should be erased and it's probably okay. So I never asked the question. I just made that assumption. And obviously in hindsight, that wasn't true.
0: In November of 2014, just a couple of weeks after Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill, 18 of the elders who served in 2007 released a letter of apology to Paul Petrie and Brent Meyer clearly stating that their actions were wrong and biased. Brad House and Scott Thomas both signed that letter. Jamie Munson has never commented on the Mars Hill story publicly, and though he didn't want to be interviewed for this podcast, he did send me a written statement. It reads, in part, I'm not really interested in talking about bylaws, theology, or leadership structure. I'm more interested in the people and their stories and understanding how my involvement at Mars Hill may have helped or hurt them. I think the real mission at Mars Hill turned out to be the building of Mark's platform and personal empire. I'm not sure it started that way, but that's what it became. Anyone who seemed unnecessary or threatened his agenda simply didn't last. Paul Petrie and Bent Meyer were two men who fell victim to the mission and were harshly, carelessly, unjustly, wrongly, and sadly discarded. What happened to them was not right, and I was there for the whole thing. I've since met with and apologized to both Bent and Paul, but I also appreciate this opportunity to do so publicly. To be clear, Bent and Paul were wronged, and I'm sorry for my involvement in that and the years of damage and pain I helped inflict on their lives and their families. It wasn't right. There's a lot of things i go back and change from my time at Mars Hill, and this is at the top of the list.
3: When he was saying those things from the pulpit, I was sitting there thinking, "Who's he talking about?" I had no idea he was talking about me or about Bent Meyer. It just—it was like you know—we uh, went—we went to this meeting and it was like uh, you know, we got hit by a freight train, you know, or a bus, <laughs> or a bus. Yes, exactly.
6: I don't know which way to turn. Where? Is it safe to learn? My heart is stuck in my head I want it back in my chest My heart is stuck in my head Return my heart to my chest
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, please leave us a rating and a review in iTunes. It'll help other people find us. Subscriptions to CT are one of the best ways to support this kind of journalism. If you want to help us keep doing this kind of work, consider joining today at orderct.com marshill The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced, written, and edited by Mike Cosper. Joy Beth Smith is our associate producer. Music, sound design, and mixing by Kate Siefker. Our theme song is "Sticks and Stones" by King's Kaleidoscope. The closing song this week is "Return My Heart to My Chest" by Joe Day. Special thanks to Ben Vandermeer. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Nicole Shanks. Editorial consulting by Andrea Palpant Dilly. CT's editor in chief is Timothy Dalrymple. We have a bonus episode next week following a rabbit trail down the story of Joshua Harris. It's a chance to look at celebrity culture and deconstruction and understanding what the connection is between the two of them and what we might learn for the sake of the church. See you next week.